Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Literary Podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and wherever you're listening from, it's great to have you with us. Now, today, I'm joined by two much-loved clergymen. One is a pop star vicar, and the other a TV priest. Uh, my first guest is the host of Saturday Live on BBC Radio 4, and the only vicar in Britain to have had a number one hit single. He read theology at King's College, and after ordination, worked as a curate in Lincolnshire and London. He's appeared on Strictly Come Dancing, something I know he loves to talk about, and is the author (laughs) of the memoirs Fathomless Riches and Bringing in the Sheaves, as well as the Sunday Times bestseller The Madness of Grief. Here to tell us about his first work of fiction is the Reverend Richard Coles. Hello to you. Hello, Joe. Lovely to have you here, Richard. And my second guest is an actor, comedian, writer, documentary filmmaker, as well as touring extensively with his stand-up shows. He's also starred in many TV series, including Death in Paradise, My Hero, and the BAFTA award-winning Father Ted. I'm currently enjoying him as a contestant on Taskmaster, another BAFTA-winning show. His first novel, Talk of the Town, was published a couple of thousand years ago, and here to tell us about his new novel, Brouhaha, it's Ardlo Hamlin. Hello to you. Hello, it's lovely to be here. What a pleasure to have you both here, and I know we've had a little bit of chat off-air, but Ardl, Richard, Richard Ardle, the introductions. Hello, Ardle, again. Hello there, it's nice Richard. to see you yes. again. And I like your I like your succeeding incarnations. It kind of makes me feel a certain affinity with you. It's good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that Ardle is winning in the headphone game at the moment, Richard, wouldn't you? Very much so. Yes, I, I'm a pilot of a small plane. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's a, maybe a sort of military helicopter in some conflict of the 1970s. I can almost smell the napalm model. Whereas I'm wearing a very slimmed down ergonomic set of headphones given to me by my publicist. I'm in the shiny offices of my publisher where people are yeah, handing out You look like you're salads. working in a call centre. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. They're handing out salads, did you say? Yes, it's a publishing thing. There's just like piles of seeds that look like they've been grown hydroponically and poured down or something. I think it's salad. I'm with the wrong publisher. (laughs) 
it's lovely to have you both here and for the next 40 minutes or so we're going to talk about your brilliant new books uh, we're going to find out what you've been reading and enjoying recently and of course we will do the book off where each of you gets three minutes to tell us about a book you love and you think that we should all read um now richard uh, let's talk about murder before even song um this is your first work of fiction as i said can you perhaps set the book up for us tell us about canon daniel clement and also about champton Ah, yes. Well, it's set in 1988 in a very familiar sort of scenario. It's an English village where the vicar, Canon Clement, lives with his mother, who's extremely rude, and his two Dachshunds. Absolutely any resemblance to any vicar living or dead is entirely coincidental. And uh, attached to this village is a large um, estate where the aristocratic de Flores family lives. So in that sense, it's a very familiar kind of scene from crime fiction. But it's set in 1988 because the world was changing in all sorts of interesting ways then. And also, from the point of view of a writer, you don't have to worry about mobile phones and nest doorbells to mess up the clandestine and nefarious activities of your murderers. But also, I wanted to write something that was 40 years thereabouts after the end of the Second World War, because I'm very interested in how long-baked trauma affects people and how it can rise up and disrupt even what appears to be very tranquil places. Now, I know that Daniel isn't you, and I know Audrey's not your mother, but there's such a great cast of characters in this book, Richard. I can't help thinking that some of them will be or have been concocted from some parishioners you've met over the years or people in your life. Is is, 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 Is it possible that there's a little bit of other people in there? Well, yes and no. I mean, actually, the, the, the Audrey, the mother of the priest sleuth in my book, is actually very like my own mother. So <laughs> I will take that one. But he's nothing like me at all. And and also, I've, I mean, it would be a very rash cleric who used, who mined his parishioners for fiction purposes, really. And so it's mostly kind of people I've heard about. Or the one of the things I love about being a vicar is that you sit on a train in a dog collar and the world kind of comes to you. And people often, I think, to their own surprise, let alone mine, will start telling you stories about their lives, things that have happened. And I've always sort of kept a a treasury of those, and I suppose I've dipped into it for this. Uh, And also, there are certain scenarios that would be familiar to anyone who's ever had a parish about the kind of rows that blow up unexpectedly over seemingly minor things. But of course, they're not minor things. They're about big things. And, um, And that's what happens at Champton. I sort of now want to know if Ardle was ever going home from the set of Father Ted in his dog collar and got approached by anyone. Well, I, I don't know about you, Richard, but when I was dressed in my priest garb while filming Father Ted all those years ago, I remember wandering around a shoe shop once and the shopkeeper gave me a little wink and said, take whatever you want, Father, it's on the house. <laughs> Well, I mean, it it does happen. God knows why, because uh, why the clergy should enjoy those perks. But I remember once in Glasgow getting out of the station and getting into a taxi and being driven miles to somewhere. And I got out and went to pay and he said, no, Father, don't worry, you're all right. So, That's great. And of course, I didn't want to say, well, actually, I'm Church of England in case he rescinded his kind <laughs> offer. Yes. Uh, so I, I tried to look, I tried to do a sort of Roman Catholic kind yeah. of well, thing. Well, it's possible, Richard, that like even without the priest gear, or the vicar gear, that people that people would be drawn to you. I mean, maybe it's just that you've got that type of face or you've got that type of energy. 
I think it's true. I think actually I'm nosy, Ardle, really. Yeah. And I think people kind of respond to that. Uh, they always did, actually, before I was ordained. I sometimes have to just check when I'm talking to someone whether I'm wearing a dog collar or not, because I don't want to presume beyond the remit of my dress, if you see what I mean. <laughs> but but it often it's amazing how many people, Ardle, talking to me are obviously influenced by father ted and will always say things like oh they're just very 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 dark navy yeah. aren't they <laughs> or um or that that's just far away i can only apologize my beautiful horse <laughs> no we love it and I, I i always wondered if if you were in father ted if you felt slightly that the clergy might look askance at it but no it's like the life of brian we all love it because <laughs> satire gets much closer to reality mm. than than anything else actually yeah yeah that's like why uh why the people in the BBC love W1A. It's exactly the same reason. <laughs> well, I, I was... Um, they filmed it on my floor at the BBC. And I came in one morning, and there were ideas seesaws in our breakout area. <laughs> and we just thought, oh, we've got ideas seesaws in our breakout area. It didn't occur to us that it might be satire. <laughs> we sat on them. I had a cappuccino. Oh, one you one. did? <laughs> yeah. Um, I love. I'd hope that that there was a camera running somewhere that's got, got that as a, as a sort of rush. Um, don't try and eat a cap. Don't try and drink a cappuccino on a seesaw. That's my tip. Very good advice, I say. Um, as you yourself mentioned, Adel, and as we have said, uh, this is your second work of fiction, but it, it's been a long time coming. Well, I, I should uh, I should point out I've been writing for years under the pseudonym Elena Ferrante. So uh, yeah. uh, that's. <laughs> I think I can finally reveal that now on this this podcast. This is such an exclusive. Yeah, <laughs> you confirm what we've all long yeah. thought, Ardle. <laughs> and it has it has been going quite well. Well, yes, uh, we should talk about uh, you know that part of the journey in a bit. But what what made you want to sort of come back and write as Ardle Handen then for your uh, well, second? No, no, I, I I always wanted to write fiction from a very early age. I had a a measure of success with that first novel, Talk of the Town, many many years ago. And um, but I was daunted by the prospect of writing a second novel for a number of reasons. I mean, the, uh, and, and Richard might be able to chime in here at some point. Um, you know, well, first of all, uh, uh, in Ireland, you write at your peril because we revere our writers, our, our Yeats and our Joyce and our Beckett and our Brendan Behan, Oscar Wilde, George Bernard Shaw and the contemporary greats, Colm Tobin and Anne Enright and Claire Keegan and Louise Kennedy and all these fantastic writers, Nisha Dolan and so on and so forth, Kevin Barry, Patrick McCabe. So, you know, uh, you take a big chance joining that kind of fray. And also, um, and this is where R Richard might be able to identify with this to some extent, you know, when, when I come from a, a comedy and entertainment background, you know, you, 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 people who know me, if they know me at all, they know me as an actor or a comedian. So they're naturally sceptical about your credentials as a writer. And... Um, you know, you're a big target in, in some ways. So, you know, again, you might be you might be reluctant to 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 get involved in that messy, <laughs> in that messy world. And the other thing, and I guess this is the main reason I had a bad experience trying to write a second novel, trying to follow up that first novel. I, I ended up taking an advance, which is not necessarily a good idea and um, and and failing to, you know, failing to deliver. Uh, so that was a sobering experience. And that probably put me off for a little bit of time. So I was basically waiting until I had the right idea and I had the time to knuckle down to it. Um, and about seven or eight years ago, I stumbled upon a little idea. Um, uh, I, I think I was I was touring my stand up in in England. And I um, 
I was doing my due diligence, uh, which I do every night, you know, you know, reading the local papers to try and find some local references that I might be able to crowbar into my set, you know, to make the audience like me a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) I came across this great story. It was a it it was a a very well written feature length article about a girl who had gone missing. And it, it became clear that everybody in the town knew who had done it, but nobody spoke out. So it's not the most original premise, but there were some quite interesting details about how the police were misdirected and so on and just about how the you know about the power that this little gang had in this in this town in England and I thought it would be quite interesting to transpose a story like that to the border region in Ireland where I grew up where you have a culture of silence um, you know where where for historical reasons you know you have a certain type of lawlessness Uh, you have a long history of smuggling you later had paramilitary activity and you had that sort of interesting nexus where paramilitarism meets crime and uh and i I was i was particularly keen to write a kind of a noirish crime thriller uh or at least you know the trappings you know this this novel would have the trappings of a crime thriller to give it momentum and and you know i i I wanted to play with that hard-boiled language you know people where i come from speak out of the corner of their mouths they speak with a deadpan tone uh and they have this tremendously dark humor uh, and I just wanted to capture all that. Uh, and I just felt that this kind of a, you know, a kind of a classic, I suppose, um, kind of crime fiction trope would, 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 would suit my purposes. It's if they talk about, in my world, um, in my crime world too, people talk like the first draft of a Henry James novel. Yeah. It's completely different. And it's an interesting one, isn't it? Sort of getting discussions with people who write in crime was... Uh, there's a sort of ideological debate over whether vicarages or, you know, back streets are the places for your action to unfold. And of course, I think people think that vicarages are rather nostalgic and unrealistic, but of course, not to me. That they, are my, yeah. they are my back street where stuff goes on. And I've sort of, I've, I've been a vicar in all sorts of places. I was in central London before my last job. And then I went to uh, you know, a village in Northamptonshire, and it was absolutely looked like a central casting country parish. There was a murder in my first week, and lift the lid on any community. And of course, people being people, do what they do everywhere, and in every Arcadia, shadows fall. And um, it's interesting, isn't it? Hard bitten crime or cozy crime? Um, well, ultimately, we're, I think we're trying to do the same thing. Like, you're trying to. You know, scratch the surface of these lovely towns. My, my novel is set in a fictional town as well called Tulliana, which is very pretty on the surface. It's very civilized. Um, there's a great sense of propriety. You've got the usual pieties and hypocrisies that you find in every small town in Ireland and Britain. Uh, you've got a great sense of community. Um, you've got this neighborliness. People can't do enough for you. And uh, and yet you scratch the surface and there are these dark undercurrents. I mean, you know, yes, murder does happen. Uh, yes, there's 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 shocking violence. There's tremendous poverty. Um, so you have all these little undercurrents, and I think from a writer's point of view, that's what's interesting. You don't have to experience it directly yourself. Like I had an idyllic childhood by any standards, I guess, but I was a watchful child, and uh, you know I have met a lot of people who have actually killed people, and not necessarily due to the troubles or anything. You know, just people who've made some terrible choices in their life. I'm sure you've met a lot more uh, as a vicar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Actually, the first person I anointed died 
as I made the sign of the cross on his forehead. And I sort of wondered if that was going to sort of be the first of, of many. But um, but no, it was just one. But I, I think it's very interesting what you say. I have an um, Irish family and they're, they're in the Republic and they've been involved in the politics of Ireland and also the kind of recovery of the Gaelic history of Ireland too um, for a long time. And there are areas in their life which are silent, I think, of necessity because they're too difficult to talk about. And it's always been interested me in Ireland and places like Ireland where conflict has been is you know, recent, uh, how people police that stuff, what you admit into consciousness and what you leave behind and how people live their lives when maybe not that long ago a balaclava was in their bottom drawer. Absolutely. And that's and my novel touches on that, even though it's not a political novel in any way. Uh, well, not in any way, but I mean, politics intrudes, as does religion, uh, inevitably, in that part of the world. But um, it is about our selective memories, you know, uh, and our secrets. And I wonder, you know, if in that part of the world, and we've made great strides in the last 20, 30 years, like ever since the Good Friday Agreement, 1999, you know, there's been, the peace has been hard won and very well preserved. But, you know, it comes at a price. And... You know, I wonder if we can fully move forward as a society uh, until we fully confront the past. And I don't know exactly how you go about that. Do, you know, does everyone have to, you know, do you have to have a truth and reconciliation moment? You know, does everyone have to come clean about everything they know? Because, you know, the price we paid as a society, and this goes right to the highest levels of Irish politics, we turned a blind eye to the activities of the paramilitaries. Um, because to draw a line under the sand and to bring these people in from the cold, uh, this was the price we, we had to pay for peace. So we had to turn a blind eye to the subsequent sort of dabbling in criminality and fuel smuggling and all these things. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the backdrop to my, to my novel. There's a very interesting complicating factor in that, I think, Ardell. When is, you know, who are the agents of that conversation? In South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, well, the church was. But in Ireland, the church has a much more compromised and complex relationship to those issues. So who has that conversation? Is it the job of the artist? Is it the job of journalists? Where's the narrative come from that you yeah. um, check against? Yeah, and I, and, I, and I do think it's the job of the artist. And, you know, this is this is what drew me back to fiction in a massive way was that I wasn't reading the type of novels that I, I wanted to read. I was wondering, like, I, I remember going to Colombia a few years ago on a family holiday, as you do. Um, we just watched Narcos and we thought that would be a good place to go. Uh, and in advance of that trip, I read a lot of Colombian fiction, contemporary Colombian fiction, you know, the, a cross section of titles that were recommended to me. And what was really striking about all of them was they all had this tone, this tension. You know, there was a there was a kind of extrajudicial forces lurking in the background there was a there was a threat there was a menace and you know uh, uh i i really i really responded to that tone i thought these are all great novels in their own right they're all trying to kind of interrogate the you know what's going on in in, in the society at that time and it was a very stable society. colombia was very stable at that time as it's as it still is you know it still is relatively very stable it was it was having a real um it, it was going through a great economic resurgence and so on uh, when we visited there and you know it was very open to tourists and you know it was very enjoyable and we felt very safe but you know all the novelists were writing about this about this tension so i wanted to i, I wanted to say like you know why aren't we writing novels like that uh, in the border region like i grew up in this it was a nice town it was a safe town but you were you were you were always aware of this threat and whether it was real or imagined is almost beside the point you know we 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 we, we felt it 
and we normalized it. And every night we watched the news, we watched the carnage on the news. We watched, you know, news items about murder and car bombs and, you know, shootings and so on. And um, and we internalized that and we normalized it. And, and looking back now, I think, well, that was quite that was quite odd. That was quite dysfunctional, you know. Mm. I think one of the things that fascinated me in my pastoral ministry was um, I dealt with I was often at the deathbeds of people who'd served in the Second World War, the last to have served in the Second World War. And these were people who would, you know, wear their blazers at the bowls club and be very fine, upstanding, good, dutiful husbands and parents and fine shopkeepers and all that kind of thing. And yet there was this extraordinary experience of carnage. They were 18, they were 19, they were 20. And it was bayonets and guts and bombs and fire and sick. It's just terrible, terrible, traumatic experiences. And then what happens? Peaky Blinders, I don't know if you watch yeah. it, I love it, but it's such an interesting idea that there was this kind of generation of young men militarised and armed on the uh, battle lines of northern France and Belgium, and they just came back. I've got these pictures of British Legion, probably it was their centenary this year, and we had a big service for it, and I was looking through their photo albums, and these pictures of these guys, respectable, in their suits and their waistcoats and their watch on a chain and their chest full of medals, but they too had been through the kind of the extraordinary... And what does it do to you? Often on a deathbed, someone will reveal something to you about what they experienced. Yes, and, they can't unsee uh, what they saw, and and, yeah. and that for me is, is 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 a big is is a big truth is is that you can't just switch it off. Like if if you've been exposed to this type of violence and bloodshed and brutality, you just can't you know you you can't switch it off. So so violence begets violence. So, you know, you shouldn't be that surprised that in, in, in societies that have experienced conflict, you will have, you know, violence against women might be more yeah. pronounced, for example. Yeah. I think another thing you get, which is interesting, I think about this a lot now, is how people who decide to leave it behind them and come home, of necessity, rather idealise the home they arrive back in. And of course, it's not like that, because it's got its own issues going on. It is a, it's reality like everywhere else. And trying to match the idealized version they've tried to protect from the carnage they've been involved in and implicated in sometimes goes awry. And that can be very difficult. Mm. And Adam, you said to you, you know, that, that the setting of Tuliana is very important, albeit fictional, but it, it, you know, that is a, a big part of this book. Um, Perhaps you could just actually set up the story of, of what happens in it and introduce us to your characters here as okay. well. Okay, well, um, yeah, <laughs> where do I start? Uh, so it's Seth and <laughs> Toliana. Um, a young man dies. It's an apparent suicide. And this opens a can of worms. So his best friend from 13 years ago comes back after a, a forced exile to find out what happened to his friend. Um, a a, a semi-retired detective comes out of his long slumber he's suffering from a trauma he's a sort of a Walter Mitty character his name is Kevin Healy he's my favorite character in the book and he's a little bit of a fantasist but he has an obsession with the story of a girl who went missing 13 years ago she was the girlfriend of this guy who dies at the beginning of the book so a journalist joins in as well a, a provincial journalist uh, Joanne who knew the person who went missing all those years ago. So between the three of them, there's a sort of a desperate attempt to find out once and for all what happened to this person. And I, saw, I suppose it's about the journey of these three people. They've all, they're all compromised in various ways. They've all got their own secrets. 
and I guess you know this investigation for them it's existential it's it it, it gives them meaning and definition in their lives uh, and and they want to find out what happens so in doing so we we, we I suppose we dissect this small community which is a stand-in for any town, by the way. It's, it, 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 on the surface, it has similarities to the town that I grew up in. Uh, but gratifyingly, people who've read the novel over the last few weeks have, have reported back to me that they're, they insist that it's their town that I'm representing. <laughs> so that's, that's good to know. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, so we just, we, just, we, just, um, we dissect the town, I guess, and we, 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 we expose it. Um, and you know, I guess it's kind of satirical on one level as well, you know, um, and it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, the the humor is quite dark. I hope it's never forced. That was a that was a big thing with me. I I, I really wanted it to 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 be very organic and to you know evolve out of plot and you know to be very true to the characters. Um. So so that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. Well, this is, that's a really interesting point that I wanted to talk to both of you about, which is which is about the tone of both of these books and that satirical nature. Because as you said earlier, Ardell, you know, you um, put people from from where you grew up sort of talked out of their mouths and you wanted to capture that dark humour, which you do in this book. And Richard, with yours, you know, you, you are able to describe a sort of English small-town churchgoer so well. But it's with... It is satirical, but it's also with affection. And so I suppose a question for both of you but I'll ask you Richard you know was it important to get the tone but also the balance right of that satire and also the affection yes I mean I'd love to take credit for all those virtues but I mean, it's kind of, um, it wasn't an entirely conscious process I think what you do get in my line of work is a circumspection and a realization that it is wise to judge gently and generously because you will be judged by that measure yourself Obviously, I'm paraphrasing here, as you know. So, and, and and the other thing you notice is that you know people, everyone messes things up, everyone gets it wrong. And for some people, as you were saying, Ardell, you will bump into people whose lives have taken an unexpected turn, and something absolutely terrible has happened, and that's changed everything for them and for everyone around them. And it kind of could happen to anybody. I was quite a lot of my ministry working in prisons, and um, every day you would be talking to somebody and thinking. You know, if you had been two minutes late, if you'd taken a left turn instead of a right turn, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. Mm. And, and and the same for you, Arnold, in terms of the tone, you already touched on it, but getting yeah. getting the humour right, I suppose, without yeah. forcing it. And it was tricky yeah. in, in this case because, yeah. you know, I think I, I think I was quite ambitious in terms of what I wanted from this novel. You know, I, I, I wanted to be grounded while acknowledging that all novels... Are an alternate reality ultimately I, I i you know it's 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 not an out and out pot boiler but it is playing very much with the tropes of crime fiction so it's a heightened reality from that point of view yeah uh yeah. i'm coming from this very comic background my instincts tend towards the comics so the book has a comic sensibility and i'm thinking in terms of other books that would have inspired me would be things like paul Beatty's book the sellout which is about race relations yeah. in america which was a fantastic book i think it was wonderful booker nominated if not a booker a winner winner booker winner yes yeah. and it's a wonderful book it's got that energy it's got that sort of stream of consciousness that kind of gonzo quality you know pinchonesque almost and um but yet it's got this anger you know which fuels the character 
you know, the characters are very angry and frustrated in, 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 in an America that is, you know, that, that from the writer's perspective is quite racist. So, so uh, uh, you know, that kind of thing inspired me. You can write a very serious novel with very grim themes, but it can be very comic. It can have comic energy. And I think that's mm. hopefully what I, that, you, know, you know, hopefully what I, what I achieved. I certainly tried to achieve it. I think it's fascinating that how quickly comedy attends tragedy. In fact, it doesn't attend. It is they are the same thing, in fact, very often. Mm. I was struck, forgive me if you've heard this story before, Idol, but John McCarthy told me this story that when he was just released from captivity in, a, uh, in the Lebanon, he came back to the UK and he was asked over to Northern Ireland by Brian Keenan, who was his fellow hostage, who was from Northern Ireland, to do a thing. And he turned up at at the, at the airport in Belfast and the guy picked him up a very lugubrious rather taciturn Ulsterman and he was sitting in the back of the taxi driving and you could see this guy looking at him and after a while the guy said are you John McCarthy? and John said yes and the bloke said wouldn't you be more comfortable in the boot? <laughs> that is absolutely brilliant and that is so typical of the type of humour you will get in Northern Ireland and along the border you know that is that is it but isn't that interesting because so important and i think that what humor can do is allow the expression of stuff that's too difficult to put plainly or boldly it's a coping mechanism is what it is and i think you'll see that riven throughout irish fiction um you know like like you know most irish writers you know in the 20th century were were i suppose post-colonial writers and and so they were using humor um you know, so it's always been part of Irish fiction. Flann O'Brien brought it to extreme levels. You know, Beckett, you know, used it, you know, in describing his very bleak universe. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, and Aldo, before we, we move on, um, as I mentioned earlier, I've been uh, obsessed with watching Taskmaster and enjoying you on this latest series. I assume, I could be wrong, but I assume it's as fun to be on it as it is for us watching it yes it's it's more fun than one could imagine possible um it's it's certainly the most fun i've had in a in a working environment uh no i absolutely loved it and you know and i can't believe it it's the kind of thing that two years ago maybe pre-pandemic i possibly would have shied away from um Mm. you know uh not not for precious reasons but just because i i was always a little bit wary about being myself on tv you know i quite like hiding behind a character or or a stand-up persona so it, it, it was kind of a it was actually a big step into the unknown for me in some ways and uh, of course there's no parachute there's no <laughs> there's no script to hide behind so i no. I, I actually felt like it was it was not just joyful but liberating as a human being oh good yeah I absolutely loved it. It, it. I had. I was watching it sometimes. I get a slight feeling of PTSD, and I wonder why. Then I realised that being confronted by an impossibly esoteric task, ill-equipped with any of the tools, as you take it, just reminded me of being on Strictly Come Dancing yeah. and having to do a pas doble and realising. I went for my medical, and the doctor said, "You've got arthritis in both knees. You're morbidly obese, and one leg is longer than the other." It wasn't an encouraging <laughs> beginning, but I, I love the way that people. Tr- they don't always triumph over adversity. They sometimes are completely wiped out by adversity, but yeah. it's so entertaining and charming. Yeah, but it, it brings out, you know, a spontaneity in you, a kind of a, yeah. a, a creativity you mightn't have even known you had, even though you might fail miserably. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the attempt that's interesting. <laughs> but the nation now has, you know, the, the image of your Paso Doble, Richard, burnt into their minds and now we all have the image of you Ardle, with a pile of shoes climbing out of a window burnt, <laughs> burnt into Probably. us so. <laughs> remembered for nothing else you know remembered <laughs> remembered for that um, before we do the book off I always like to ask my guests what they've been reading and enjoying recently if there's anyone uh, that any authors that you'd like to sort of champion and shout about quickly or a book that you've just loved um, have you found time to read Richard recently Yes. Well, of course, I've just been away for two weeks, so I've read a bit. Two, one non-fiction I enjoyed hugely that hardly needs puffing at all, but it's Tina Brown's The Palace Papers, which I read with enormous... Like any, like lots of people, I'm sort of fascinated in national institutions and the failure of national institutions and how we try to hold things together. And if you think the monarchy might be one of those institutions then looking at this book is fascinating so that was great and also there's something about tina brown that's her kind of even curiosity about everything is great i read a wonderful novel by susie boyt called loved and missed she's a fantastic writer you might know her writing from the financial times but it's a beautiful beautiful novel about the effects of addiction on a family and of my own life has been uh, shaped by the effects of addiction too so it was very resonant for me and it's just beautifully beautifully judged she read a wonderful book about judy garland i don't know if you, know, you remember that no i don't know it no and there's another fantastic crime novelist janice hallett who wrote the i think it was the best crime debut of 2021 the appeal i don't know it's actually also about um, 
a story about some uh, about something that went very badly wrong in the past and everyone's got secrets i don't know if you know it Ardle, but um, when you were talking about your book it reminded me of that book it's really great it's really great great lovely thank you richard and what about you Ardle? have you had um i know you've been here there and everywhere filming and up and down the country have you had some time to read yeah I, i i have um a little bit of time to read. Um, I'm, I'm reading one at the moment that I just picked up in Bookshop in London last week, uh, which is it's by David Keenan. He's a Scottish writer, and this book is called For the Good Times. And I just was aware of him, but I hadn't read any of his work, so I was just curious. And I was very glad I picked it up. It's called, it's called For the Good Times. It's about a kind of a rogue IRA cell. Uh, so it's shocking, filthy, profane, um, but really, really, really funny and sort of captures kind of the squalor of of those dark days in, in, in Northern Ireland. Um, I guess he'd be compared inevitably as a Scottish writer. He'd be compared to Irvin Welch or something like that. But that's something I'm really, really enjoying right now. Um, I just read V.S. Naipaul for the first time. A huge gap in my education wow. now now filled. Um, so I read The House of Mr. Biswas, which is just, you know, it's it's Wonderful. it's the novel we aspire to. It's the, you know, if, if Jesus Christ is the man we aspire to be, The House of Mr. Biswas is the novel we all aspire to write, <laughs> I would say. Uh, sorry, good. and um, uh, <laughs> sorry, I was getting... Little bit carried away with my with my with, with, with that little bit of poetry there. Um, I loved uh, Louise Kennedy, uh, an Irish writer. She wrote a collection of sh- short stories called "The End of the Road" is the cul-de-sac, and they are beautiful stories. Um, also, Colin Barrett has just released a collection called "Homesickness," which is, I suppose, a, a touch of that Irish Gothic you might be familiar with from reading Kevin Barry or Patrick McCabe. Um, mm. But it's contemporary, and again, it's about small town, you know, rural rural life and the and the dark undercurrents fantastic well thank you both for those brilliant recommendations and it's time for another now because it's time for the book off and this is where each of you is going to get three minutes uninterrupted if you want it to tell us about a book you love and why we should all read it um before we get into it we've got to do a little bit of admin um and Ardlers, you are technically traveling the furthest you get to decide if you go first or second <laughs> Okay, well, I will go second. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. What about it? But, Bless you, you for that. Um, yeah, no, 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 you're welcome. That's I mean, it. to be honest with you, I've already kind of mentally conceded because I've picked, uh, I've picked a very hard sell. But anyway, you go ahead, Richard. Well, we'll see how you do. Uh, and Richard, as I said, you've got three minutes. You don't have to use that. But if you're still speaking at the three minute mark, you will be uh, rung out by the school bell or honked by the uh, bicycle horn. Which would you prefer at your three minutes? I'm going for the honk. The honk it is. OK, yeah. fabulous. Uh, so I'm going to put three minutes on the clock. And just before we start, Richard, just tell us the book that you're putting forward. please. The book I'm putting forward is The Changeling by Robin Jenkins. Let me tell you about The Changeling by Robin Jenkins. He's a wonderful, wonderful writer, uh, beginning to be more widely read now, but he's a Scottish writer. He was born in 1912 and he died in uh, just in the beginning of the 21st century. Fantastic novelist, dazzlingly talented. Um, he wrote a number of novels and The Changeling was written in the 1950s. He grew up in very straitened circumstances in Glasgow 
and through investment in education and access to education he became an english teacher himself he worked in scotland also in borneo and then he started writing and the changeling is about uh, an idealistic school teacher um, who takes on a 13 year old boy who grew up in a slum but he has this kind of spark of intelligence about him and he's determined to see what he can do to form this into you know Kaliard kid sort of scenario and so he invites this boy, 13-year-old, from a Glasgow tenement on holiday with him and his family as he tries to kind of introduce him to the world of literature and culture that he inhabits. And uh, he takes him on holiday to one of those Scottish islands like Butte or Millport that so many Glaswegians then used to go for their holidays. And it's about what happens when you take someone out of a slum and with the best of your intentions, you try to turn them into your creature, into some sort of a changeling. The best of intentions being that you want to give them a better life than the life that they've been born into. But what you also do unintentionally when you do that is you turn them into strangers to themselves and you take them, pick them up and put them down in a world where they don't really know what they're doing and how difficult that can be. And this boy tries his best to adapt to these new circumstances and finds it increasingly difficult. And the book ends in tragedy. It's You see it coming, but when it comes, it is so heartbreaking that it will haunt your waking thoughts and indeed your dreams ever after. So that's The Changing by Robin Jenkins. He wrote another wonderful book called The Cone Gatherers. He was a conscientious objector, and he wrote a book about going into the Argyle forests to collect cones, which is something people did, that I once tried to turn into an opera with no success at all. And another very strange book called Fergus Lament about a boy who grows up in the tenements of Glasgow and has a sort of magical realist sort of strange encounter uh, with a woman in the islands uh, in the west of Scotland. Robin Jenkins, um, absolutely wonderful author. I can't recommend him highly enough. And The Changeling is, I think, the book you might start with him. Do I get a honk? Oh, yeah. Of course you get a honk. Wonderfully done. With, uh, with 15 seconds to spare, Richard, so... Total pro. Uh, very good. You have a little uh, rest, have a sip of tea, um, because it's over to you now, Ardell. I'm putting three minutes back on the clock, and just before we start that, tell us the book that you're putting forward, please. Well, if you had asked me a few days ago, I would have probably said um, Eric Ambler's book, Uncommon Danger. Uh, Eric Ambler was uh, a writer of spy thrillers, uh, and this one he wrote in 1937, and it's a geopolitical novel. It could have been written today. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, it features a, a, a protagonist who's out of his depth. It's got witty lines. It's got dastardly villains. And it's set uh, in a conflict in Eastern Europe. And um, big business are all over it. So it's very timely and it's a very wonderful novel. The reason I'm not picking that novel <laughs> is because I was delayed at Bristol Airport uh, last weekend and uh, I lost the book with about three or four chapters to go. So I can't fully stand over it. So <laughs> uh, I have to pick um, Jhumpa Lahiri's novel, Whereabouts. Uh, it's the last novel I completed. It's a, it's a, it's a slim novella. And the reason why I, 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 I fear that Richard might trump me is that in this novel, nothing really happens. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's a series of, of lovely, uh, elegant vignettes. Uh, the protagonist is a middle-aged, nameless female academic in a, in a nameless Italian city. 
And it's really just her everyday observations of the world around her. And I guess it's about alienation and kind of dislocation on the surface. If you read Rachel Cusk, The Outline Trilogy, or something like Elena Ferrante's The Days of the Abandonment, uh, you you get a sense of, of, of the tone. So it's this laser-like observation. Um, but that said, it's it does something that, that very, very few novels do. It, you know, after you read it, you feel enlightened in some strange way. I feel I understand women better having read it. Uh, I feel I have a, a fuller appreciation of the human condition having read it. Um, and I feel... I feel less alone. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the character, and we don't know an awful lot about her. We don't know an awful lot about the, the places she visits. We don't know an awful lot about the people she encounters. But we do, she manages to, she manages to, you know, I suppose, nail down the ineffable, if you like. Um, she manages to describe the intangible, which is something all writers, I think, strive for. Um, and, you know, this character is a very lonely woman. She lives a very solitary existence. Um, but she experiences life intensely. All the little irritations, all the small pleasures, and all that accumulation of detail. It just adds up to something very special, something very hypnotic. Um, so so I can't commend it highly enough. And the, 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 the clincher for me is that it's quite short. Yes. Very good. Uh, perfect timing as well with with just 10 seconds to go Arnold. so two two pros uh, and a wonderful pitch um from you so you have a rest Arnold. i just want to come back and talk about this uh fabulous book which i don't know rich the uh, the changeling um uh, but then i'm hideously underread and hearing you talk about it um it just brought up lots of thoughts of some of the contemporary stuff i've read recently like um douglas stewart for example thinking of those you know that Glaswegian literature and 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 you know boys specifically from tenements um but this yeah this idea I suppose of um wanting to do something good with the best yeah. intentions but actually yeah trying to turn t- turn a, someone into something they're not and then making themselves strangers you know that's yeah. it's I mean for the best of you know the best of reasons you think that you're doing somebody a favor but actually you might not be doing them a favor at all it's a projection of your own anxieties your own wishes your own yeah. kind of dreams and delusions about yourself really i spent a lot of time working with kids in a very very deprived estate when i was newly ordained and one boy who was 10 who was an extraordinary intelligent lively original thinking boy but had very tough circumstances and i remember kind of working really hard with him and getting sort of some moments of realization and, and breakthrough and thinking at last this is going to be wonderful my great gift to this community is going to be this kid will one day be prime minister or i don't know director of channel four or something that's been sold off um and then the next day he put a brick through my car window <laughs> and i realized that it was just all about my fantasy and that the reality mm-hmm. of his life was he was just trying to get through the day and his day yeah. was unimaginably tough compared with mine and uh he ended up in in prison and then he died of a heroin overdose when he wasn't very much mm-hmm. older so uh that was uh something that's i've never forgotten yeah and robin jenkins just sounds like a, a great writer I, I don't know them so uh thank you for bringing him to our attention um 
with with those other books. I'm fascinated by the Cone book, I must say, as well, that you mentioned. Um, and I have to say, Ardell, we, we, with not much, you you did a great job uh, talking about where, whereabouts. I mean, I... I love a short book. Oh God, I love a short book, and I love a novella, and I love short stories, um, and I love vignettes, and I love this idea of being able to feel enlightened having read a book to, as you put it, understand women better, feel less alone, um, and this amazing thing that that um, that you say she manages to sort of describe the intangible which i just thought was a lovely yeah. line towards the end of that i mean it sounds like a fabulous piece of writing it, well it's it's it is gorgeous i mean it's it's written with kind of i wouldn't say icy precision like it's it is a it's kind of warm in some strange way but mm. it's 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 very precise it's very sparish so she's a writer i think she's american indian and english is english is possibly bengali might be her first language but english would be the language i think she sp- spoke a lot growing up but she uh, migrated, I think, to Italy for a number of years. And so and she ultimately decided to write in Italian. And then she translated the novel back into English. And I think wow. it was a bit like Beckett did with his later work, you know, where he wrote in French. And, and the reason for doing that is to strip out anything ornate or unnecessary. So the novel, it's incredibly spare. Uh, it's just the essentials that are left. Mm. And mm. so so she kind of does away with you know, over elaborate descriptions of places and things and, you know, people. And it's really all about the essence of being human, I guess, at the end of the day. Mm. So that's what I mean by, you know, you do feel quite enlightened at the end of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's nothing like nothing happening. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but so then true. little things yeah. take on huge significance. Then a little tiny gesture can be like a dramatic plot change, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I loved both of these pictures and loved hearing about both of these books, uh, neither of which I, I knew before this. So thank you so much for those and for bringing them both to, to our attention. Um, i gotta, I got to take one home, though, and oh, that's a toughie. Um, Come on, you want the short one. Think, you know you I do. Think, I think I'm going to take whereabouts. I think I am. Yeah. Jump a la here he wins. Yay. You know, well done. Po- possibly because I felt sorry uh, that you left the book you wanted to pitch at the airport. Or I don't know. But uh, that was a, no, it was a fabulous pitch as they both were. And I'm I'm really interested to read both of these now. Uh, and I do love a short book as well. Um, so thank book. you for those brilliant recommendations. And here's two more for you. Uh, Brew Ha Ha by Ardell O'Hanlon, which is out now. Now, and it's published by Harper Collins and Murder Before Even Song by Richard Coles. It's also out now. It's published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. And I suggest you get yourselves a copy of each of them to read and share. Um, what an absolute joy to have you both here, Ardell Richard. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your recommendations and hope to see you in person soon. Excellent. Thank you, Joe. Thank, Thank you, Thank you very much. Real pleasure talking to you both. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 